1: you have the chance to win a spring super sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps.
2: It's air talk here on LAist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram at LAist official. I'm Austin Cross joining you, as always, for another fantastic Friday, and I hope your morning is off to a great start. Larry's back next hour with Film Week, but we start today with some changes to California's COVID guidelines. The latest note that if your symptoms are mild and improving without medication, you're good to go to work or school, and that is a big departure from the previous order that required folks with COVID to isolate for at least five days before going back out into the world. To help us make sense of these changes, we're calling in Dr. PCH, Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist and professor of medicine at the UCSF Medical Center. Dr. Chin Hong, thank you as always for joining us here on Airtalk. My pleasure, Austin. Happy Friday. Happiest of Fridays. And for folks listening, and if you have a general COVID-19 question, you can give us a call now at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. You can also email atcomments at laist.com. Now, Dr. Chin Hong, I just want to start with your thoughts, your initial thoughts on these new guidelines, especially this one that says, hey, folks can return back to their lives uh, as long as their symptoms are uh, are getting better and that they're fever free for 24 hours, what are you thinking? So it sounds really surprising, Austin, but it you know I do
3: think these are reasonable uh, guidelines at this point um, for two big reasons. The first is that the population immunity is uh, much more robust uh, in 2024 than it was in 2020. Um, you know, I think more than 95% are immune in the population from the uh, most recent CDC data. And the second big reason is that we have a lot more options available, both for prevention of infection, uh, serious infection and disease, uh, as well as treatment uh, of COVID complications. There are several other uh, sort of secondary reasons, uh, that the state has cited, one is minimizing disruptions. Uh, That is a big deal. I I think we've known that the pandemic uh, emergency, particularly in kids has led to about four months to anywhere from four months to 1.5 years in terms of a deficit in uh, kids being left behind, particularly in math. And this is particularly pronounced among uh, children of color. And there's also been mental health repercussions. And again, two Hmm. other reasons might be alignment with other respiratory viruses and uh, what other countries
2: are already doing. Talking right now with Dr. Peter Chen Hong, infectious disease specialist and professor of medicine at the UCSF Medical Center about some changes to California's COVID isolation rules. And if you have questions about these new guidelines or general questions about COVID-19, we have a line open for you. 866-893-5722 is our number. There's also our email, atcomments at com. Just be sure to give us your name and where you are messaging us from. Well, you bring up a lot of good points, Doctor. Of course, there's, as we've learned throughout this pandemic, there's, uh, you know, the, the facts, and then there's how we feel about those facts or about those changes. Um, obviously, it's going to make people a little bit uncomfortable to hear that uh, folks who might still be sniffling or experiencing some symptoms could soon be in their workplace uh, again. What role does masking play going forward in your view?
3: Um, Yeah, so masking continues in terms of guidance. Um, So if you're positive, uh, wearing a mask for 10 days is recommended still. So there are a lot of things that are not changing. In fact, one might say that we shouldn't treat uh, COVID as a separate disease, but we should be wearing masks but other respiratory viruses as Mm. well because, you know, we want to reduce transmission.
2: Is there a balance that public health officials have to strike between, you know, maybe there are decreased odds that somebody would spread their COVID-19 if they were infected, but at the same time, society does need to move on. You mentioned Kids not being in school for long periods of time, obviously, that's a big issue of concern. A lot of uh, achievement gaps have have risen as a result of that. Um, But where does one find that balance when they're coming up with a new rule where they say, well, you know, there might be some risk? Because I should mention another one of these guidelines is if you're testing positive but you're asymptomatic, you can go out into the world, which, again, kind of flies in the face of what we've been taught over the past almost four years now. Um, where does one find that balance when coming up with public health guidelines? I think that's a great question, Austin.
3: Um, you know, one thing parents and people in the community can do is, of course, arm themselves with as much protection as possible. And right now, the latest data is that only 8% of kids <clears throat> excuse me, mm. have gotten the COVID shots and twenty one percent of adults. and even in the most high risk population, those over sixty five, only about forty one percent of those have gotten their recent shots. So I think there's still some room, a lot of room for improvement. The other um, you know issue, I think, is, you know, we have to be flexible. and I think it's really tough in Covid because evidence has changed over time. And when you look at the most recent um, data, say since Omicron, When you're asymptomatic, um, you're likely to spread COVID probably about uh, almost four times less than those Mm -hmm. who have symptoms. So I think all of that is leading to this change in thinking uh, apart
2: from the reasons that I mentioned earlier. Talking right now with Dr. Peter Chen Hong, Infectious Disease Specialist. We've got a line open for you at 866-893-5722 if you have a COVID question for the doctor. John in Palm Springs emailed us and says a lot of people are skipping their boosters. He says he's one of those folks that's been putting it off. And his question is, will COVID become more dangerous the longer you go without a booster? Doctor?
3: That's a great question. I think It is, as we progress in the pandemic, it's getting more dangerous for one group in particular. And, you know, a second group with, um, you know, a proportion of a second group. The the main group that I continue to worry about is those who are older, particularly those over 75, because that's where the data is. And, you know, it is national data, as well as the patients I'm seeing now, it's typically somebody over 75 who hadn't gotten their shot in a year. And that's hmm. driving about 1,600 deaths a week in the United yeah. States, which is way too much. And then the other group, of course, is those who are very immune compromised. Not the person who has diabetes or even uh, a malignancy, but somebody who's you know, recently gotten a transplant or has no ability to make uh, antibodies. Those are the ones who, again, we continue to be worried about.
2: I mean, that leads right into my next question, because what this does in so many ways is it kind of leaves it up to both our individual uh, public health departments, but also our own individual workplaces to determine what their COVID policies will be. Obviously, some people work uh, more close quarters. People work uh, with people who may be immunocompromised. And I'm wondering if you think it's necessary for some health professionals, uh, health care workers, people who work with the elderly, to uh, maybe have different office policies than maybe somebody who, I'll use us as an example, maybe somebody who works in public radio. Definitely.
3: So when you look at the California guidelines, the most recent one from the Department of Public Health, they do call out um, high-risk uh, situations and uh, scenarios In the healthcare workplace, for example, where I work, we've never done away with masks. We still continue Mm -hmm. to wear masks around patients, even if we're negative. So I think that continues as well as nursing homes. And they do also call out the fact that if you live with um, someone who's older or immune compromised, even if you yourself are healthy, you'd want to be more conservative. And that's around making sure that. you know, you you do the appropriate testing when you have symptoms and you repeat the testing if that testing is negative.
2: Talking right now with Dr. Peter Chen Hong about the latest COVID guideline change here in California. If you have a question for the doctor, eight six six eight nine three five seven two two is our number. There's also atcomments AT comments at laist.com, that is our email address, where William in Los Angeles wrote in saying, I'm wondering what people who have had COVID in the past and have received the most recent vaccine can expect. So his questions specifically are, are they less likely to get symptomatic COVID, or are they just as likely to get sick, but maybe less likely to end up in the hospital? Doctor.
3: Yeah, so people have, um, you know, been infected with COVID recently. Uh, they generally have a force field of about three months uh, without the need to get an additional Uh, vaccine um, to continue protection. If you're older uh, than, say, 75 in particular, or very immune compromised, uh, you may want to get that vaccine sooner rather than later. But the person who, say, uh, got it in the summer uh, is younger um, and they get it again, it's likely going to be milder, um, uh, you know, for that individual based on the data we have so far. So that's kind of the way it goes. The only other caveat I would say is that people are, are getting reinfected um, in this past season uh, for the holidays because the variants have changed. Mm. So in the past, we've had XBB, but now we have, you know, JN1. It's a little bit different. So that's, you know, if it was still the same We wouldn't have had so many cases uh, in the community
2: over over the holidays. I mean, doctor, I will say I'm one of those people who was unlucky enough to catch a case of COVID-19 over this past winter as well. Uh, And I also was, shame on me, one of those people who did not get the latest uh, vaccine. But from what I'm hearing, I'll need to wait at least maybe another two months before I should get the next one. Or should, you know, maybe people, if they've had it recently, should they still hop on it soon?
3: Yeah, I, I think you can safely wait a couple of months and then you probably won't have to get it again for, you know, until the next winter. And in fact, you know, I'm excited uh, to look forward to the day when we can just combine a lot of vaccines and you just have one needle. In fact, they're working on a combination of flu and COVID. So you just go
2: get your one needle and uh, you get uh, protection against two viruses. Wow, I'm sure people will love not getting pricked uh, more than once. Sammy is giving us a call from Merceda. Sammy, what's your question for the doctor?
4: I got COVID last week on Wednesday, and I just tested negative Tuesday this week. I was wondering if that was something I could expect,
5: and also if a negative test really means I won't spread COVID.
2: Doctor? So
3: that's a great question from Sammy. Um, in the California Department of Public Health guidelines and the CDC as well, they they recommend if you really want to know your negative, you should test at least twice uh, to have negative tests. But in general, a negative test really denotes uh, reduced potential of transmission. And what we're finding out in 2024 is people are turning negative much faster than in the Mm. old days. uh, And that's because we have more robust immunity in general
2: in the population. Right. I definitely noticed that with myself. I was testing negative about four days after I uh, started testing positive. And also, can I just say as an aside, doctor, uh, I love when you say that's a great question. It just makes us all feel so good about ourselves that like, yeah, we're asking good questions of the doctor.
3: They are great questions. And LA's um, uh, listeners, are, they always have traditionally asked um,
2: in Questions. Oh, yeah. I love our earliest listeners. Oh, well, I want to ask you one question before we let you go, doctor. We have about a minute left, but this week we did get some new federal documents that showed uh, a Chinese scientist sought to publish the genetic profile of the coronavirus two weeks before Beijing formally released that sequence. There's some thought that that delay maybe slowed the work that researchers could have done on testing treatments, vaccines to combat the virus. But looking big picture, especially as Congress continues to look into the origins of COVID, as we move forward, how important is it that we know where COVID came from?
3: I think it's important for so many reasons. The first is that uh, we really need to trust each other if because we are going to get another pandemic, uh, need to be transparent. And I think it will give uh, some level of accountability but personally speaking, I'm very pessimistic that we'll ever really know the true origins because, you know, a lot of, um, evidence has been, you know, dispensed with, um, and, you know, in, in some senses, as much as possible, we need to move on. The W. has talked about disease X now, mm. and the fact that we all need to collaborate to really uh, work together to prevent the collateral damage from the next pandemic
2: and just to be clear disease x because i've read a little bit about this but i haven't read too deeply is that something that's not yet come but just looking ahead to the future
3: yes it's something that could have a pandemic potential some people think 10 times as many deaths as covid um oh. uh, something we don't know about although there are about 12 diseases currently in the world that
2: have pandemic potential that like avian flu that haven't uh you know reached that level yet Gosh, I do not want to hear the words another pandemic, but Dr. Peter Chen Hong, you have throughout this pandemic been helping us feel uh, a lot better about things or at least giving us more knowledge so that we don't worry needlessly. Thank you so much for coming on here to talk today, doctor. Thanks so much, Austin. I'm glad you're over your COVID, too. (laughs) Thank you so much. He is one of our regular COVID-19 experts here on AirTalk and infectious disease specialist and professor of medicine at the UCSF Medical Center. Coming up, we're going to look at why Chinese automakers are targeting electric vehicles as their potential window into the American car market. That is coming up in just 60 seconds here on AirTalk, on air and live streaming on Instagram at LAistOfficial. We're back in 60 seconds. It's Air talk here on LAist 89.3. I'm live streaming on Instagram at LAistOfficial. Official. I'm Austin Cross. It is wonderful to be with you. Coming up at the end of the hour, it is Food Friday. And today we are diving into some Greek cuisine. I will talk to the co-owner of the recently closed La Petite Greek in Larchmont Village. They have a new place now. We're going to try it. We're going to talk about it. Scale of 1 to 10, 11 on my excitement scale. But first, Chinese automakers, they are expanding exports. They surged more than 63% last year, and they have become a global leader in the electric vehicle market. And that has a lot of auto industry analysts wondering not if, but when we might see Chinese-made EVs on American streets. Let's dig into this with Sam Fiorani VP of Global Vehicle Forecasting with Auto Forecast Solutions. Sam, thank you so much for being with us. Well, Sam, I'm hoping that you're there, but I just want to start off by asking why we do not see Chinese-made vehicles on the roads in the U.S. today. It right, looks like Sam might not be on the line with us, but we'll circle back to. Are Sam. you there? Oh, Sam! Yes, hello, Good. Sam. Excellent. Welcome. Sorry about that. Oh, don't you worry at all. Let's just start off again. Why do yeah. we not see Chinese-made vehicles on the roads in the U.S. today?
7: Well, the tariffs currently uh, make it unprofitable to bring in a vehicle from China. Uh, adding twenty-five percent to any vehicle anywhere in the world, it just takes it out of competition in in this very competitive market. Uh, the prices of vehicles in the U.S. relative to their size and, and their market around the world is pretty low. So when you bring in a vehicle from, from say, China and you add 25 percent to the cost, it's just going to price it right out of competition.
2: I mean, just because we don't see them, though, I mean, I think for a lot of us, that means that we are not thinking about them. Uh, but I saw some numbers that Americans last year bought just shy of 14 million cars But Chinese citizens bought 23.6 million cars. Can you tell me a little bit about the Chinese auto industry, just how big it is, maybe who some of the big players are in that?
7: China has become the largest automaker in the world. And that growth has taken the last 25 years or so. Uh, Car companies have been in China for a long time. Uh, American car companies have been in China for 40 years but it's just been over the last 20 years or so that it has developed to the point where it's competitive, where the vehicles are, are, are selling in China. And now they're to the point where they're they're building so many in China that they can export them. And that has become a huge hub for for companies like BYD, for a state-owned company called SAIC, and uh, Geely and Great Wall and a, and a number of other larger companies. EVs, or larger vehicle manufacturers that are in China.
2: Let's bring into the conversation economist Barry Naughton. He's a professor at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. Professor Naughton, thank you so much for coming on.
0: Pleasure to be here.
2: Are we seeing a boost in the Chinese EV, uh, both production and capability in recent years? Because I know in our last segment, we just talked about COVID. China's economy took a major hit from COVID. There was a real estate bust, and now there's some pretty robust government investment in renewables. Are we seeing a bigger boost in that now in the Chinese EV market?
0: We're seeing the current effects of almost uh, 15 years of massive investment in this industry. I mean, China, when it came out of the global financial crisis way back in 2008, 2009, decided to put money into strategic emerging industries, they call them. And electric vehicles were one of these from the very start. They wasted a lot of money on it for many years, but Mm. now it's finally paying off.
2: So what are the economic advantages in your view of China's EV market entering the U.S. auto landscape? Why would it be attractive to them?
0: Well, it's attractive for two reasons. I mean, one is that they're just very ambitious and looking for a new uh, export industry to replace, you know, garments and toys and all the things that we've grown accustomed to seeing at at Walmart. But also, uh, you know, it's a very vigorous entrepreneurial culture, too. So there's, there's 30 or 40 reasonably competent EV makers in China, and they are now in a very vicious price war. Their margins are compressed, and so they're looking for new markets to just to survive in many cases.
2: Talking right now with Barry Naughton, economist and professor at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. Coming back to Sam Fiorani, who's the VP of Global Vehicle Forecasting with Auto Forecast Solutions. Uh, if we start to see these vehicles emerge in the U.S., I believe the starting point is Maybe who do you think has the potential of getting there first and what would be their way in? Considering, as you mentioned, the 25% tariffs, uh, there are also uh, some rebates in America that I believe only apply uh, to cars that have a certain amount of parts, elements that were manufactured in so-called friendly countries. But, but who maybe has a leg up here? The the question is not if
7: but when, oh yeah, because uh, these vehicles are going to be here. We we already see Chinese vehicles on the streets in the U.S., but uh, they're not with Chinese brands. Uh, Buick sells a vehicle, Volvo sells a couple, so there are models here already. But it's the Chinese brands that are that will be here, and brands like BYD, which is uh, a, a very large EV maker, is probably going to be one of the first. Uh, these companies are already selling in Mexico because of their lower tariffs, so they can bring in these vehicles and sell them on the low end and, and are making inroads into Mexico. Currently, Chinese brands make up about 10% of the Mexican market, and that's just going to grow, and it has been growing very quickly over the last few years. So once they get to a certain level, they'll start building vehicles in Mexico. That They're already searching for places to build uh, vehicles from a company called Great Wall, Uh, BYD won't be too far behind, and SAIC is right there with them. So we expect these plants to be opened within the next two or three years. And once they get enough uh, uh, North American content, they can just bring them across the border and sell them as domestic
2: vehicles. You know, looking back at this transition from when it was predominantly American-made vehicles on the roads to when we started to see Japanese vehicles uh, appear, Uh, I think that one thing that people realize, especially uh, automakers, people watching the industry, is that um, the price point really matters a lot to people, maybe the value that people are getting for their dollar. When it comes to the potential price points for some of the cars, uh, especially the ones that could be manufactured, say, in Mexico uh, and then sent over to here, how different could the prices be, or does it is it more less about price than you know maybe the features that they could provide for the price?
7: If this question had come up ten years ago, it would have been on price because that's the the one in that uh, a new brand has. Uh, there's a space at the bottom of the market for an inexpensive vehicle. When uh, these vehicles come in, they will likely be electric, and so they're going to be higher priced than say a twenty thousand dollar vehicle, but they're going to be lower priced than say a forty thousand dollar Tesla. So it's going to come in at a good price for, for the manufacturer and an excellent price for the buyers in the United States. When, when, when you factor in likely a $7,500 rebate that they'll get in the U.S. for having uh, locally contented batteries and motors, it, this, is, this is where the in will be because the manufacturers currently on the market have left this gap at the bottom of the market.
2: Uh, talking right now with Sam Fiorani with Auto Forecast Solutions, coming back to Barry Naughton at UC San Diego. Uh, Barry, we've heard now uh, from Sam, it's not an if, but a win. What are some ways that you suspect the U.S. will respond to this win scenario?
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's a, a great question. And Sam has already raised one of the, the big unknowns, which is um, – You know, I think it's definite, as he said, that the Chinese will set up operations in Mexico, but the U.S. regulations restricting um, subsidies, at least, are more complex than that. It's not enough to produce in Mexico. You also have to sort of wean yourself from Chinese supplies of the components of the vehicle as well. So there's going to be lots of back and forth about that. And another thing that's going to happen, I think—I I don't know if Sam will agree with this—but uh, you know, I think the American manufacturers will catch up. It's going to take, you know, four or five years. But um, you know, they, their start with EV production was not particularly impressive. But then remember that their start in competing with the Japanese in the 80s was not particularly impressive either. But eventually, they got it right, and I think that's going to happen uh, in this case as well. The other thing is, I think both the us and europe long run this is we're going to make the transition to green industries right and the relations with china are bad enough that the us is gonna and and the eu too are going to make enormous efforts not to become too dependent on china and if that means you know hidden or overt protectionism that's definitely going to be part of the uh, part of the scene. I think it already is, but we can easily see it intensify as the Chinese challenge increases.
2: Just thinking about the infrastructure that's necessary, though, to build a car these days, which are very heavy on computer components. Uh, there are screens now. Uh, obviously, you know, you're know you sourcing the raw materials from various places. As far as just the cost of production, um, are we seeing? Are you getting the sense that maybe U.S. auto manufacturers might also end up, you know, manufacturing maybe more of their products in a place like Mexico to lower the costs, uh, especially the labor costs, so that they can compete at least on a price level? Absolutely. Talking right now, it's a very quick yes. Sam, did you want to weigh in on that one? It, yes, we've already seen that, but we're not going to see
7: a, a huge influx of new. Uh, Mexican plants, uh, mainly because the USMCA has made it uh, required a, a certain level of payment for workers who build vehicles that are free trade. So making them in Mexico, you still have to pay the workers a, a reasonable wage, and it just makes it uh, more likely that they'll be built in the U.S. or Canada instead, uh, because of that, that wage is, is competitive with U.S. wages
2: already. But Sam, staying with you though, um, is it a bit of an existential moment for the automakers? I know they just had a round of uh, strikes uh, for auto workers at a number of American companies. Um, and at the same time, we're looking at different markets shifting, right? We're looking at the Chinese market being taken up largely with domestically produced vehicles, maybe pushing out the foreign makers. Uh, we're seeing maybe Chinese companies making roads in Europe, some plans to build a factory in Hungary that could maybe get around some tariffs that they have there. So that could maybe take another bite out of a potential market. We've already seen you know, in Mexico, Chinese vehicles are already selling Hondas and Subarus. So it's taking a bite out of that market. So I, all this to say is, is this one of those moments where it's like, oh, we've got to get it together. We've got to read the tea leaves and make some changes.
7: As Professor Naughton said, you know we're, we're this is a cyclical industry, and we've seen this before. Yeah. Uh, right after World War II, Volkswagen made inroads into into the country, and that took the low end and raised quality issues, and the Americans caught up. And then twenty years later, the Japanese did the same thing, and then ten or fifteen years after that, the Koreans did the same thing. It, these. These cycles happen where there's a a gap in the market and there's something to be exploited, whereas it's American quality or American pricing or uh, just uh, American efficiency, depending on the year. So each time somebody has come in and exploited that and taken advantage of it, and then it took a few more years for the American manufacturers to catch up and fill that void as well. Uh, Right now, we're looking at, since COVID, we've had a supply chain issue that has, focused all the production on more expensive vehicles. And that has left the space at the bottom of the market for mm. anything under $30,000. And it's just ripe for someone to come in and take advantage of.
0: That's so- a super interesting analysis. And I would just add, um, you know, part of the solution in the previous rounds was that the Japanese automakers, for example, restricted their exports and then invested in the US. Um, we're really ambivalent about China doing that because we have so much strategic distrust of China. Uh, so that's that's one avenue that's a lot less likely to, to to play an important role. And and you know one of the funny things is we've got this same set of issues with regard to solar panels, uh, batteries, and some electric uh, transmission equipment as well. So you know as the U.S. makes this. Green transition. It's got this tremendous strategic question to what extent are we going to allow China to participate in the construction of the green infrastructure in the United States?
2: That will be. Oh, sorry to interrupt you, Professor Barry. I was just going to say that will be one of the major questions that we're facing in the coming years. Uh, Just about 30 seconds left. Professor Barry Naughton, uh, just want to ask you if you had to make a guess of how many years before we would maybe start seeing uh, Chinese brand automakers. Uh, starting to try to sell in America, reaching that point? How well, long do you think it would take?
0: I mean, as Sam said, we we do see a couple. You know, right. the,
2: pole, the
0: pole star that you see sometimes on the street is actually assembled in China. Um, I think it's going to be three to five years before we see mass efforts to import Chinese uh, vehicles. But I uh, that might be too conservative. It might be faster than that.
2: Polestar, I believe, in the Volvo family. Sam Fiorani. Before we go, uh, how many years are you thinking?
7: It's going to be three or four years before a plant is up and running to that level, but and before they get to seventy-two and a half percent local content, it'll
2: probably be five or six years. Sam Fiorani, VP of Global Vehicle Forecasting with Auto Forecast Solutions. We also heard from Barry Naughton, economist and professor at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego. So nice to have you both on. When we come back here on Air Talk, a growing number of Black Americans are getting into the stock market. We're going to hear what kind of picks they're making in just 60 seconds. Stick around. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3 on a Friday with me, Austin Cross. And we are live streaming right now on Instagram as well, LAist official, L-A-I-S-T official. If you would like to join the conversation there and also get a peek inside Studio A. And I should tell you, you'll definitely want to join us for Food Friday coming up in about 10 minutes because we are doing Greek food today. I am so excited for that. But first, there is a new wave of investors starting to get into the stock market. That is black Americans, more specifically young black Americans. A recent article in The Wall Street Journal looked at Federal Reserve data that found that in 2022, almost 40 percent of black Americans owned stocks. That is up from just a few years before Joining me to talk about it, author of the aforementioned piece, Oyen Adedoyan. She is a personal finance reporter in the Wall Street Journal's Life and Work Bureau. Oyen, thank you so much for coming on.
5: Thank you for having me.
2: Well, let's start with the big question of what is driving more Black Americans to invest. I think one of the numbers was that you know in 2016, it was under 33%. 2022, it is at 40%. That is... A significant rise, considering both recent and past long past history, what's driving this change
5: yeah it's it's a huge uptick, and especially for black investors, we were seeing that increase at a higher rate uh compared to white investors as well. Some of the things that researchers said were driving this increase include um the pandemic. the pandemic gave A lot of people time to accumulate you know some more funds um, and also kind of research about investing and get involved in the stock market at least that's definitely what happened with a lot of black families and young black Americans
2: I mean there's a lot to be said about this idea of building generational wealth I know Mm -hmm. um, even after the George Floyd situation when so many people were talking about you know differences and, and community advantages I know for me personally, a lot of thoughts turn to, well, a lot of people had, you know, decades, maybe even centuries of advantage uh, to build up financial resources. And so there's kind of a why not me aspect to it. I'll just say for me on a personal level. But let me ask you, based on your research, how investors are getting their financial advice. Who are they seeking tips from? Yeah,
5: I mean, that's that's a really good point that you bring up too. the idea of generational wealth. That's been a huge motivator in this new wave of investors that are coming in. And part of the thing that made investing a little bit more accessible, especially for communities of color include, you know, those investing apps that have come out um, that have made mobile investing and mobile banking a lot more of an option for um black families and black families are more likely to rely on online banking and online resources like social media as well as word of mouth when it comes to financial advice in comparison to other races as well so it was it was a lot of those things working at the same time um including kind of more word of mouth when it came to things like meme stocks and other stocks that were very in the news during that time, too, including GameStop and AMC.
2: Right. I know a lot of people kind of lost their hats on meme stocks. And so that leads me to this question of risk. I know that there are ways to build a portfolio where you're maybe mm-hmm. spreading out, you're diversifying. Um, but you t- talked to some people, or at least one person, uh, who did not. Could you just tell me a little bit about? what their experience was with a meme stock specifically?
5: Yeah, I spoke with a young woman in California who, you know, she's exactly the person that we're talking about. She was able to accumulate a lot of savings during the pandemic, about $14,000. And her friends were making money um, investing in GameStop. And that kind of inspired her to get involved as well. And so she saw, you know, AMC was up. And she put all of her savings from the pandemic. So that entire 14000 into AMC stock uh, saw the value kind of go up a little bit. She got $2,000 at one point, decided to keep her money in there. But soon after that, it plummeted and uh, she lost about 10000 Yeah, it was
2: painful. Oh, ouch, rode the wave. That is so, mm-hmm. so painful to hear. Talking right now with Oya Nadehoy and personal finance reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Now, on the other hand, you spoke to another young man, though, uh, who it seems he grew up with a little bit of exposure to conversations about wealth and mm-hmm. finance. And so he put his money into companies like BlackRock, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, Progressive, JP Morgan Chase. Uh, what was his outcome?
5: Yeah, he grew up, um, you know, with his grandfather. Who talked a lot about business and finance and was really interested in business news. And when his grandfather passed away in 2017, he decided to open his own brokerage account and really started to become kind of a student of stocks and and business and finance. And so for him, it, it's it's almost like another job, you know, the way that he describes it. And he you know keeps up with all these companies, but he really wanted to invest in companies that had a durable competitive advantage and a global impact. So um, it seems that he's been seeing a lot of growth in the past couple of years. I think his portfolio is valued at at least above like 75000 now.
2: So started with 22000 got up to 75000 To me, this really speaks to the value of good financial advice. I know there are a lot of websites. If anybody's ever tried to research a stock, you could say, should I buy blank stock? And you'll see one article that says – you know, the bulls are all for this stock. You should go in. And the other one says, well, the bears are <laughs> seeing a decline because mm-hmm. they missed their, their quarterly earning. Um, and so there's a lot of conflicting information out there. I'd say a person has to do a lot of real research. But it also seems to speak to me about a need, in, especially in the black community, for there to be resources for people to access. So when they want to build that wealth, uh, they know where to go. Is that correct?
5: Yes, precisely. I mean, you know, many, many black investors, especially young black investors who are just getting into it might look at companies that they recognize and just invest there. That's what a lot of the investors who I spoke with told me, you know, they recognize Apple and and kind of other tech companies and retail companies and they put they put their money there. Whereas, you know, when you speak to financial advisors, they recommend for incoming investors to put money into a fund or, um, you know, an ETF or kind of. A stock that has a group of companies together so that you can kind of measure that risk and diversify that portfolio. So there is a huge gap when it comes to education, financial literacy education, especially with this new wave of investors that is more diverse than before.
2: That's Oyen Adedoyen, personal finance reporter in the Wall Street Journal's Life and Work Bureau, wrote a very fascinating piece titled, Black Investors Are the Biggest New Group of Stock Buyers. Oyen, thank you so much for coming on today.
6: Thank you for having me.
2: It's Air Talk Friday here on LAist 89.3. I'm Austin Cross and live streaming on Instagram at LAist Official. When we come back, we are going to have some Greek food from the folks that previously brought us La Petite Greek. They've got a new spot now. We will talk about it, but you might not want to miss it. LAIST Official is where you can see the action as well as hear it. We are back in 90 seconds. It's Air talk here on LAist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram at LAist Official. That is L-A-I-S-T Official. And it is Food Friday here today. So think about this. Grassy olive oil, pungent oregano, a bright pop of lemon. Those are just some of the iconic flavors of Greece. And for today's Food Friday, we are sailing the Aegean Sea. And talking Greek cuisine with mm-hmm. Nora Hundales, co-owner of the newly opened Greek Eats in Beverly Grove. For 30 years, she and her husband, Dimitri Lan ran Le Petite Greek in Larchmont Village. Now they've got this new spot. Nora, welcome. Kalimera.
4: Kalimera, Austin. <laughs> it's so good to be here.
2: Oh, I'm so excited. Now, so I want to ask you about the building blocks of Greek cuisine, just so people have a little something in their head because sure. I know that oil is important. I know that lemon is important. Can you break down a few of the top ones? And I,
4: always, I always laugh. I always say, you know, Greek cuisine is what we would call, you know, farm to table because that's the way people in Greece have eaten for centuries and you still see that a lot of farmers market. So it's very simple, fresh food. You have some seasonings that over thousands of years have spread up from, you know, India through Asia, uh, along there, and you can see those influences. But they have, you know, very simple, clean cuisine. And their three, what I call the holy trinity of Greek cuisine, is extra virgin olive oil, Mm -hmm. uh, lemon, and Greek oregano.
2: Greek oregano, and you actually brought in some Greek oregano. I brought
4: a fresh sprig. This
2: was a suggestion of your husband's. Yes, he
4: was like, "Let him smell Greek oregano." Okay.
2: Oh my god! And it's
4: so, it's so, it's so beautiful because oregano is pungent, and yeah. it is a little bitter and sweet. But you have different oreganos oh. throughout the Mediterranean, the Middle East, Mexico, Puerto Rico—all wonderful flavors. You find the South American um, or uh, Mexican oregano is a little bit more citrusy, right? And some of the Italian and Turkish is a little bit more pungent or bitter. Mm-hmm. But the Greek oregano is savory, so it's got a very earthy quality.
2: Ah, uh, exciting! So you brought three d- dishes in here. There's uh, actually for us four. To try. One four. Uh,
4: back there too, if you want to try that. Oh my gosh! So okay. So w- we have the um, just because you know it's a little chilly here in LA. <laughs> right. We have right, the right. avo lemono soup. And this okay. is a really traditional Greek soup. Avon means egg, and it's, an, it's really a chicken-lemon-egg soup. You don't okay. see egg or taste egg that. because you whisk it the whole time. Um. But it has this beautiful lemon flavor, perfect on a chilly day or when you're feeling under the weather. Just nice big chunks of chicken breast, celery, got carrots in there, a little rice. Mm. Wow. A little bit of basil, oh my which is goodness. also very common in Greece. It's just is perfect for a chilly day. It right?
2: is. It just warms your soul. Yeah. Warms your heart a little bit.
4: Chicken soup's in every culture. There's nothing mm. – you can't go
2: wrong with a chicken soup. You certainly cannot. Um, I do have to ask. So it was La Petite Greek was your shop before. What's what's changed over the years? That you've got so, a new spot now.
4: Well, we've been there. Uh, we were at Le Petit Greek. We just closed on New Year's Eve of 2023, and we were there for 35 and a half years, actually. And, um, you know, we've watched many changes in the industry. And when the pandemic hit, we thought it's time, you know, for us to think more into our future. How much longer are we going to be able to... Um, afford the changes that are uh, stressing out the restaurant industry in major cities. And we Dimitri always wanted to do a fast casual concept. It's just that he's a one-man show. He doesn't have that hospitality group behind him. So um, we just decided it was time. And we went ahead and started planning um, Greek Eats during the pandemic as our next step, kind of the baby of Le Petit Greek.
2: Oh, well, I, I mean, I'm so sorry that things went the way that they did. But also, this seems like a great new opportunity. Fast Casual is very big It's now.
4: easier. Look, we're not spring chickens anymore. That's what Demetra <laughs> and I always say. We're like, like, look, you know, if we were in our 30s, it would be different. We'd probably still be on, on Larchmont. But as we age, we want to move forward. So you see before you two dishes over there. Okay. One is moussaka, moussaka, which is a traditional casserole-style dish. Okay. Now, we have looked historically into moussaka and we believe that this dish started when Arabs brought eggplant into Europe Ah. but you can't really find it in a lot of places there's a like kind of like the first stages of it you can see in like an Arab cookbook from you know a thousand years ago Ah. but what happened was is when um, the Ottomans were trying to control Constantinople which is now part of Turkey Istanbul a very famous French chef Nicholas Ceslamentis, mm. I hope I say that correctly, put a bechamel on it, and oh, when he put the bechamel, the like French, French bechamel, it is yeah. because he was a he was the most influential in wow. 1910 for a Greek chef who had trained in Paris. So when he put the bechamel on it, he was basically saying, "We in Constantinople side with Europe. We're European." Wow, it was a
2: political move. It was
4: a political move, and Europe, you know, it's a Greek name, Evropi, you know. So this is like wow. the open sea. So Moussaka, you've got these layers of potatoes, mm. eggplant, zucchini, a seasoned ground wow. beef with a touch of cloves and cinnamon and then a béchamel sauce and baked in the oven. And wow. to me that's like that's Greek comfort food right there. I mean,
2: it's it's comfort food for anybody who tries this, right? right? Like this is one of the favorite things I've eaten uh, so far.
3: Right?
2: Uh doing these food Fridays because it's just so it just flows all together so well. It's, it's so. Like, del-
4: it's just yeah. It's just all these
2: influences come together.
4: Yeah, they all they're so good. And next to them, you have those are our patates du forno, which are our lemon potatoes. Oh, and wow. these, a lot of people think of Greek food having a lot of rice, but really you use potatoes a lot. And they, we cannot give the secret lemony. recipe until my book comes out. Yes, ooh. but yeah, but they are. It's just a roasted lemon potato, and people just come in sometimes to order those. They're addicted to them.
2: You'll have to maybe come in when your cookbook is out, and we'll do like a little cooking. We'll thing do cooking together, thing. together here in the studio. <laughs> um, the lemony is perfect. It's the right balance. It's not too, um, you know, lemon sour. Obviously, right. not too sour though. It's just enough where you're like, ooh, I want more. Like yeah. it gets your uh, your salivary blends kind of going there
4: yeah well you think potatoes are so neutral so they can really take in any flavor Mm
2: -hmm. we didn't think we'd actually have time to get to our fourth one but i think we have about a minute left so
4: so, this is tell me what's in front of me right now spanakopita spanakopita this is spinach feta cheese leeks wrapped in that Listen to that crunch! Isn't that fantastic? Oh yeah! Wrapped in that very paper thin phyllo crispy, you know, mm-hmm. dough baked in the oven, and it's just a mouthful of deliciousness.
2: I'm gonna, I'm gonna try that again because I, a former producer, I love the sound of yeah. sound, but I also want to say, um, just wonderful flavors. I was just in Greece. I was mentioning before we went on. I was just in Greece last year, and this is taking me right back. I feel like I'm on vacation again.
4: Exactly. Mm. And we have, our family has Le Petit Mm. Greek Santorini Hotel in uh, Santorini, which we were talking about before. So we have, Mm -hmm. Le Petit Greek still lives on, you know, even Mm. though we are now Greek Eats you can still order from. It's the same cuisine exactly, just in a fast casual style.
2: Everything is just wonderful. The fact that you can get food of this caliber for fast casual, mind blowing today. Like you could have the best lunch of any of your coworkers.
4: We don't want to feed anybody what we would not <laughs> eat ourselves. So we want to make it excellent for
2: the everyone. The new spot is Greek Eats. It's in Beverly Grove. It is based off of the, the DNA of La Petite Greek and Larchmont Village, which many of you might remember. We just heard from Nora Hundalis, co-owner of Greek Eats. Nora, thank you so much for coming. Thank in today.
4: you, Austin. Just
2: feel like I'm in your it's kitchen. Great
4: to be here. Come by anytime.
2: <laughs> <laughs> this is air Talk on a Friday. I'm Austin Cross. Thank you so much for listening. Larry is back next hour with Film Week. Stick around.
6: Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org.
8: It's Film Week on LA 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and synagogues.com, Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com, and co host of the Breakfast All Day YouTube and podcast series, and Charles Solomon, critic for Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We begin with the sci fi thriller ISS, which takes us to the International Space Station. Ariana DeBose stars with Chris Messina. The film is directed by Gabriella Cowperwait and uh, Nick Schaefer is the screenwriter. Christy, what did you think of ISS?
1: I was actually pretty impressed with how much they accomplish here. Um, it's clearly a low budget and a very limited space here. It takes place on the International Space Station. It's the near future. And we have three American astronauts and three Russian cosmonauts. And they're all there doing all their scientific stuff together and getting along and not talking about politics. But all of a sudden, one day... They see little flare-ups on Earth below, and there's a nuclear war that's bust out while they're up in in space, and both teams get directions from their respective commanders to take over the ISS by any means necessary. And it's really tense. I think it's really well done, and it accomplishes a lot in a little bit. Um, It's an interesting choice from Ariana DeBose coming off of her Oscar for West Side Story, a very flashy role as Anita. Here it is stripped down, and it is quiet, and it is small, and you feel like you are trapped up there with all of them because it's like stuff is held down with bungee cords and duffel bags are shoved into corners and it's not like, you know, snazzy, s- slick, Kubrickian space. It's messy and it's cramped and you feel that tension.
9: Uh, 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 trapped, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it is unfortunate that this film suffers by comparison to films like Apollo 13 and Gravity and oh, oh, and, and films that have done these sort of human beings in space visually, with budgets far and away larger than this budget. In, in this film, you can see the wires. You can see the
1: wires. But you're supposed to. Well, it's production design. Also,
9: this film, ISS, the International Space Station is a very, very small thing. These people are upright all the time in this film. And they had to do that because the actors had to be able to do that. Now, what you do have is the tension of this narrative. I like the tension of the that notion, the Russian, I mean, here we are in the world today, and I, and I can see that. Happen. Now, what they do with that is make a fairly ordinary and pedestrian thriller about the <laughs> Ruskies and the Americans and what we're going to do, and
8: that's unfortunate. Because, because they could, you could open it up to so many interesting philosophical issues. Considering, considering we
9: know uh, many of the uh, cosmonauts and astronauts who've been on that space station, I've met two or three of them. Uh, some of them are from around about here. I know these human beings and the nature of them. And I, and I do wonder, what would these kinds of humans actually do with those orders? And I don't believe any of them would do the things that these, these folks do with these orders. We do have these images out of those ports that Christy mm-hmm. was talking about when, when the Earth goes aflame. That's what this film has to offer, the images of that Earth from space they're extraordinary
8: it sounds though, like you were able to suspend disbelief and just go for the ride christy
1: oh totally because I, I feel like the way that they make you mistrust everyone the way that they all are mistrustful of each other is kind of fun like you don't know who's telling the truth you don't know whose alliances are safe ones and that's constantly shifting and there's some visual stuff they do as a scene where they're they're drinking whiskey and the liquid kind of bubbles up up because there's no gravity and that visual of a liquid bubbling up comes back later on in a way that is chilling. So they they accomplish a lot visually, I thought, in an impressive way.
10: Ah. But I mean, this is going back to a theme that was very popular in um, like 50s and 60s science fiction. Arthur C. Clarke and uh, Ray Bradbury all did stories of seeing the earth go up and then how did the people who are watching
8: it um, respond. Mm. I think there was even a Twilight Zone if I recall <laughs> which this a theme. ISS a sci-fi thriller starring Ariana DeBose. Gabriela Kaperthwaite is the director. Nick Schaefer the screenwriter. It's rated R in wide release. The Kitchen is a British sci-fi adventure film starring Kane Robinson and Jediah Bannerman. The film is directed by Daniel Kaluuya and Kibwe Tavares, uh, making feature directorial debut for both of those. Uh, Also, uh, uh, Kaluuya, one of the writers of the screenplay. Tim, what would you think of The Kitchen?
9: Well, I really, really like this film. This is very, very good. Um, It's sharp, it's fast, yet slow. And I'll I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. It's very pointed and very serious about its concerns, right? And its concerns involve the structure of society, caste systems, uh, um, um, in the future in London. About 2040 is when I think it's said, if I'm not mistaken. And I love the way it looks because it's all very futuristic but not. Everything looks ordinary. And what this film questions is, what what will society really look like when we have a future of haves and have-nots but for real? None of that Elysium stuff with a spaceship. No, 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 no. In looking at this film, I got the feeling that, yeah, I think it'll look something like this. Yeah, I think it'll, it'll be something like this. The, the kitchen is this high-rise complex. There's several of them all over London. And people uh, have simply taken them. Uh, they, These people should all be evicted. They shouldn't be living there. But they just said, no, we're not moving. We're staying. Every now and again, the powers to be send in these troops, these armed, jackbooted thugs to beat these people up and get them out of there one by one. And they lock it down and they support each other. We have this man. His name is Kane. He, uh, he's in that series Top Boy, if you, if you like British cop drama. Hmm. Uh, he's wonderful in that series and he's outstanding in this movie. And, and little by little, we find out things about him. He grew up in the kitchen. He works at this place that reminded me of that situation in Soylent Green, where Everett G. <laughs> Robertson goes at the end of his life. There's one of those dynamics here that's really sharp and really kind of chilling, too. Um, he finds out that he has a son, and he has to decide what he's going to do. Is he going to stay in the kitchen with all of these people? or Is he going to do what he really wants to do, is to get out of there? But but it's about that. It's about these people fighting for a place to exist. Can we not even live in Nothing. Is what these people are saying. This is nothing, and you won't let us have that either. I thought it was a very sharp film, very moving.
8: We're talking about The Kitchen starring Kane Robinson, Christy.
1: I liked it a lot too, and I liked the visually, the kind of the high and the low of it, because these high rise slums they live in are like brutalist and concrete and grim and very textural, but then there's cool technology even within them like you're brushing your teeth in the mirror and your messages come up your emails come up like in a digital way and you can swipe away from them if you don't want to see them so little touches here and there that let you know you're in the future although these folks don't even have water Mm. sometimes Um, that kind of reluctant father figure story in a dystopian future we have seen so 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 many times including really recently on The Last of Us where you have the the stoic reluctant dad and the mouth the precocious teen and they've got to navigate this awful world together and will they survive and will they learn to come together as a makeshift family unit and drop their guards and love each other well yeah of course all that's going to happen but the writing here is so strong the performances are so good they feel so real they feel like real people don't they mm. and the kid's really great in it and uh, I was really impressed that this is a directorial debut. It's, it's really ambitious, but also feels just smart and very confident at the same time. Yeah,
9: da- Daniel and Kibwe. Kibwe, very interesting fellow. Directorial debut, yes, feature film. He's made many, many short films. He is an architect. Uh, he's a Bartlett School of Architecture guy master's degree in architecture and, and and when you look at this movie what he's doing is he's mapping out a future for a society that he intends to build he's designed all of these buildings that are in this movie they're digital in the movie but he's designed these, these these buildings these ways of living and he's just a brilliant brilliant fellow this young fellow and he's figured out a way to meld architecture with cinema uh, and to sort of show the world that he intends to build before he built it also We're- I
1: mentioned the, sorry, the use of music is really great oh. too isn't it awesome? A great soundtrack and such joy in this bleak place. It's this really great like line dancing when they were, scene, when and on roller t- skating. R-
9: skating r- 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 <laughs> that was so good. Some good moments here. Yeah,
8: we're talking about the kitchen, which is streaming on Netflix, starring Kane Robinson, co-directed by Daniel Kaluuya and Keepway Tavares. Kaluuya and Joe Murta wrote the screenplay. It's rated R. The kitchen on Netflix. The end. We start from a British dramatic thriller. Stars Jodie Comer and Catherine. Waterston. Uh, The film's directed by Mahalia Bello and uh, written by Alice Birch. It's uh, adapted from uh, a novel of the same name, The End We Start From. Tim, what'd you think?
9: This is outstanding, too. Watch this right after you watch The Kitchen. They go together. I swear that they do. Uh, a very pregnant Jodie Conger uh, um, uh, is, in this, is in her home. There's this torrential storm going on. I mean, like a biblical storm going on. And, and she's about to have this baby. Whore water breaks when the, when the, when the water around uh, London and the United Kingdom breaks. So we find ourselves in this movie with people who are kind of in a last of us sort of situation in the UK. I like that it's about the UK. It's not the whole world. There isn't some sort of evil mushroom that's going to take over your brain or zombies or anything like that. But this destruction has happened and people become what people become, this pregnant woman. We're going to find ourselves on a road trip with this woman. She's going to have that baby and she's got to get to where she can be safe with that baby. Uh, and it's just a fantastically uh, – it's a story of endurance, but it comes down to this notion of what do we do when something like this happens? Again, it's not zombies. You know, uh, a terrible thing has happened. It's extreme but
8: weather, but, yeah. are, but
9: are we going to come back from this or are we going to let it all go? That's the question at the center of this movie. Shall we simply let it all go or will we try to get it back? Uh, and she has a reason to try to get it back because she's got that baby. It's a really, really, really strong film. Uh, perhaps a little repetitious in some of our walking down these ancient streets and stuff like that. But nevertheless, the thoughts and the notions that are going on here are very, very moving. It's very strong.
8: What about the performances that Bello elicits? It's good acting. Uh,
9: yeah, well, Jodie Comer's Jodie Comer. Yeah. So, so what are you going to do? Hey, but, the, but the rest of the movie, too. Mark Strong is in this movie. There are a few other characters that you are know, sort of relevant to what's going on. I don't want to give anything away, so I don't want to talk about them too much. But they're all just as strong as they can possibly
8: be. The end we start from is the drama from the U.K. starring Jodie Comer. Mahalia Bello is the director. Alice Birch wrote the screenplay. It's rated R. You can see it in select theaters. Uh, Maboroshi is a Japanese animated drama. The film was written and directed by Mari Okada. Charles, please tell us about Maboroshi. Well, Mari uh, Okada is one of the few
10: writer-directors who are women in Japan. We're slowly getting more of them. There are more female producers, but it's still relatively unusual, and so she's she's gotten a lot of attention. This is an interesting film. The premise is... Uh, In this tiny, isolated valley, there's an explosion at a steel plant where they've been mining the ore from a a mountain that's inhabited by a local deity, a Kamisama. And when that goes off, the town is frozen in time. It's not like Groundhog Day, where they live the same thing over and over again. It's that they know nothing is ever going to change. Uh, The pregnant woman, as Tim was talking about, there's one who's so excited to be having her first child, but she will never have it. She'll just continue being pregnant. The kids who are at the center of it realize they're never going to grow up. They're going to be teenagers forever for as long as this strange world continues. Uh, Things start to get complicated when the hero and heroine discover a feral girl living in the ruins of the steel plant who is somehow connected to all this. It's The storyline is a bit more convoluted than it needs to be, and the film is a bit longer than it needs to be. But that image of a life that just continues so drearily and endlessly without any break or any change is quite chilling and something, I think, that's new, we really haven't seen before.
8: It sounds like Mm. a significant social commentary as well. Yes.
10: And as with um, uh, Godzilla Minus One, you once again have a Japanese government that apparently can do nothing. Mm. These people are stranded there. They're left to their own resources. Eventually, it's the kids who try and find a way to solve this, not surprisingly. But that impetus of the government can be seen once again as a commentary on the government's failure in the crisis that we call Fukushima,
8: where they were simply could not muster an adequate response. We're talking about the Japanese animated film Maburoshi, which is written and directed by Mari Okada. It's rated PG-13 in Japanese with English subtitles, and Maburoshi is streaming on Netflix. You can see it there. I do want to remind you that our Film Week Academy Awards preview is coming up. On March 3rd, Sunday, just the week before the Oscars, we'll be at the historic Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles. We'll be bringing all of our critics together again on stage, watch clips of the films, and talk with our critics about the major categories to get their sense of who should win, which performances, which screenplays, which movies have been overlooked. They'll share their opinion on that. That's all coming up on Sunday, March 3rd, Afternoon, the Film Week Academy Awards preview at the Orpheum Theater. Tickets are available at lais.com slash events. We hope to see you there in the audience and a big crowd to enjoy what's an incredibly wide ranging year in film with some truly great movies that are under consideration. Back with more with our critics on Film Week in just one minute. good to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by critics Charles Solomon, Christy Lemire, and Tim Cogshell. Next, the Vietnamese drama Inside the Yellow Cocoon Shell. It's written and directed by Thien and Pham. Tim, what do you think?
9: Well, this is a very strong film. It's a slow roll. Uh, it's very much about the images, the language, the thoughts, the ideas, but very much the images. Some, some scenes in this film go on for two minutes, uh, very, very purposefully. Uh, and, and it lingers on things very purposefully. It's, it's highly constructed and predetermined, although it's meant to feel random. Uh, Of course, anything that feels just random can't be (laughs) random, so it's very, very, very specifically constructed. Um, Beginning with this conversation that these young men are having at the beginning of the film, uh, Tien, our character that we're going to follow, he's an agnostic boy, and he's talking with his friends about agnosticism, atheism, and and life, and death, and all of this kind of stuff, And, and slowly, 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 as they're talking, the camera drifts right to the street in this cafe where they are, and there's this horrible accident. This is all in real time. In this accident, a woman is killed, and the little boy survives. It's going to turn out that that woman is Tien's sister-in-law, and the little boy is his nephew. Random, but not. We're going to have this film where he has to take uh, her body and that little boy back to the village that they grew up in in Vietnam. His brother married her and ran off many, many years ago, and they don't know where he is. And and, and, and on this long trip with him and this little five-year-old boy, we're going to talk and we're going to look at stuff. And, and this little boy has the most insightful questions. I mean, they are piercing. Uh, and it is amazing to watch this actor uh, try to figure out how to answer those questions. Because I'm sitting there and watching this movie. I'm like, oh, bro. <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I can't help you. And, and that's the movie. It's very, very slow. It's extremely beautiful. Uh, it never answers any of these questions, not a single one. And it doesn't care. It's daring, this film. you got to sit there. you got to watch it. you got to feel it. But if you do, man, you're going to get something out of this movie. It's lovely, lovely, lovely. I, th- I think it won an award or something at like Cannes, or at least it was nominated. It's like Critics Week
8: or something. Yeah, like Cannes was the winner of the Golden Camera nah, Award. That's what it was, yeah. Um, it, uh, so it sounds like it's, it's a road trip film, but even at that, a leisurely road trip. A film. very
9: leisurely road tri- trip film <laughs> between a young man, he's probably only 29 or 30, 10, and, the, and that little five-year-old boy. Uh, uh, who's smarter than most people I've met in my life. And great entire life. chemistry between oh, the two actors. Wonderful. Just a wonderful little
8: movie. Inside the Yellow Cocoon Shell is the title of the Vietnamese drama written and directed by Tin and Pham. Uh, it's uh, one showing only at the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood this Sunday, and then at the Los Feliz 3, it has a single showing next Thursday, January 25th. It's unrated in Vietnamese with English subtitles. The romantic film Which Brings Me to You stars Lucy Hale and Nat Wolf. Peter Hutchings is the director. Keith Bunnan is the screenwriter. Christy, please start us on Which Brings Me to You. This
1: one's very cute and charming. It has a very clever central conceit. So, Lucy Hale and Nat Wolf are Jane and Will. They meet cute at a wedding and flirt and are instantaneously attracted to each other and they start to make out and kind of hook up with each other in the coat closet and they realize no, no 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 no, this is not a good idea let's actually get to know each other And so they spend the rest of the movie telling each other stories about ex-boyfriends ex-girlfriends mistakes they've made things they've learned but the fun thing with this is that let's say Nat Wolf telling a story about a, a college girlfriend he had Lucy Hale will show up inside that story in the dress she's wearing to the wedding like, really, you said that to her? And so they're constantly commenting on one another's mistakes and their foibles. And the chemistry is really great. They're both super attractive and have a a nice way with each other. It's a fun movie. I would say it goes on way, way, way too long. Mm. The ending consists of them at dawn standing there explaining everything. Everything to each other, and in a way that is so needless, it should be so implicit based on the bond they have forged over all this time. So, I liked it for a while, and by the end, I'm like, All right, let's get going here. <laughs> yeah.
8: Which brings me to you, uh, the romantic Ooh. film, Tim. When,
9: when, I, when I read the title of this, just read the title of it, you which I read it like this Which brings me to you, that's what was in my head, right? right. So, yeah. so, 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 I, I, not that movie at all. it's <laughs> uh, over, so, yeah, that movie might be interesting, though. This is this is cute. It really, really is. I, I, sometimes I forget that they are, like, young people who've never <laughs> done any of these things before. Uh, you know, Harry Met Sally. What are those Ethan Hawke, Julie Delphi movies? Before. Before, yeah. I got, we got, before Sunrise. We, After Sunrise. I have three decades of these movies in me, so, so this is killing me. But I'm thinking that young people watching this movie are probably experiencing something very, very familiar to them mm-hmm. uh, as they sort of work their way through these things. So I have to remind myself of that. And, and, and in that context, I say, yes, kids, go ahead and watch a cute little movie.
1: Which brings me to you. Which brings me to you. It's an
6: uplift. (laughs) Which brings me to you.
8: Which brings me to you? (laughs) Lucy Lucy Hale and Nat Wolf, co-star Peter Hutchings directed. It's unrated, adapted from a novel of, of the same name. It's in select theaters. Inshallah, a boy... Uh, it is directed by uh, Ajmad al-Rashid in a feature directorial debut. Uh, the film is unrated. Tim, what did you think of Inshallah, uh, a boy?
9: Ah, God's will, a boy. Uh, this is a very, very, very powerful film, a Jordanian film. Um, um, and and this, this film is interesting in that it is about things that you can't really make films about in Jordan. Um, mostly, uh, this woman who has a daughter and a husband. Her husband is killed. Uh, the male family members of her husband, her husband's brother, want to take her house from her, her apartment from her, because they can, right? Um, uh, she's, uh, she, she tells them, uh, the court, I- I'm pregnant, uh, and I'm pretty sure my baby's going to be a boy. Uh, uh, she has no idea whether or not she's pregnant. She certainly could have no idea whether or not the baby was going to be a boy, but it's enough to stave off the system while she tries to pull her things together, her assets together. The one thing that she needs to do most is learn to drive her husband had bought this truck payments have to be made on the truck if she can learn to drive she can use that truck to make the money to save her house it's a stick shift unfortunately (laughs) which is tough which is not tough i taught my mother to drive on a stick shift in about two hours 50 years ago but nevertheless in this movie it's a tough thing (laughs) And she has to to teach herself and she has to teach chris no men until she meets one good guy one good guy which is why i think they let this film be made in jordan
8: the film is Inshallah, a Boy, the Jordanian film directed by Amjid al-Rashid. Uh, the film is unrated. It's in Arabic with English subtitles. And it's Jordan's official submission for Best International Feature at the upcoming Oscars, you can see Inshallah, a Boy at Lemley's Glendale Theater. Cowboy Bebop, the movie, which was First released uh, back in uh, 2001 in Japan and 2002 here in the U.S. is getting a re-release, Cowboy Bebop the movie. Charles? When
10: Shinichiro Watanabe completed Cowboy Bebop the series, which is one of the really classic pieces of anime, uh, he killed off Spike Spiegel, the hero. I mean, the character demanded it. But everybody was upset. Kim's still upset. Yes, so am I. And they wanted it to keep going. So they couldn't do another season, so they made the feature that takes place sort of in the middle of the uh, TV series. It is the closest thing you'll see to an animated film noir that actually works. We've seen some American things with Batman where it looks good in stills but doesn't have the right kind of moving and pacing and tension to it. And here they're on Mars. Uh, Spike and his gang are bounty hunters. They, they don't want to get involved in anything, but they end up trying to capture someone who is going to poison the entire population with these nanomachines made of protein. And they have to find a way to outwit him. And the big showdown comes amid Halloween celebration. So you've got you know a whole parade of people in scarecrow and pumpkin costumes. And there are interesting shadows and patterns, and it's just so much fun to be there with Spike and Jet and Faye and The Gang again. It's a really strong movie, and again, it shows Japanese artists using animation in a way we don't
8: in this country. 22 years after its theatrical release, it's back. Cowboy Bebop, the movie directed by Shinichiro Watanabe. The film's written by Keiko Nobumoto. It's unrated, and you can see it in select theaters for three nights only, starting this Sunday, January 21st. The Palestinian documentary Bye Bye Tiberius is directed by Lina Sualem. Christy, what do you think of this documentary?
1: It's very lovely and personal and and gentle. So the filmmaker Lina Sualem is the daughter of longtime Palestinian actress Chaim Abbas, who has done... So much like she is Logan Roy's wife in succession, the most recent wife on succession. She is great in The Visitor. She is great in Munich, like Blade Runner 2049, just an actress of elegance and power who is always good no matter what it is. And so she goes with her daughter back to the Palestinian village where she grew up and reminisces about. The reasons that she left, she's a, a, one of like seven children and you know, dared to go off to Paris and then to the United States to go become an actress. And there's a lot of home movie footage from her childhood. And it's about, you know, multi-generational connections and women and tradition and looking forward. And it's maybe a little too intimate and a little too personal I feel like there's maybe no there's no clear eyed kind of distance on this woman and her career and and the decisions it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a daughter making a film about her mother mm. you know so it, it's so incredibly personal and, and, and delicate so um, I like a lot about it but I, I kind of wish it were I don't know maybe by somebody else maybe mm. <laughs> who wasn't her
9: daughter <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it's a funny thing because very little of her career they talk about when you, when you went off to, to, be, to be an actress uh, when she was in her early 20s and they talk about that a wee bit but I'm like, this woman is not a, this is a, she's a huge, The Lemon Tree, Larry? Yeah. Syrian Bride? Yeah, she's the Syrian Bride. Film. She's yeah. a huge, huge movie star. In mm-hmm. uh, her career, she didn't just go off to become a little actress. No, she's this, she's, she's this one. Yeah. But you would not know that from this film, and it matters yeah. in, in the context of everything that she left, right? Uh, had she stayed, she would have lived the lives of her seven sisters. She has seven sisters. And we meet her, her mother, and uh, and pictures and other things, her grandmother. So this, this deep generational stuff by this lake um so i i, I agree I, I i like the film here
8: but i think there should have been more film mm-hmm. here we're talking about the documentary bye bye tiberius uh, directed by lena Swalem. Uh, the film is unrated and it's Palestine's submission for the best international feature film category of the upcoming oscars you can see it at lemley's monica film center in santa monica I want to turn our attention to the Annie Awards, which honored the Best in Animation. Uh, and for the first time ever, Disney and its Pixar division have been shut out of the Best Feature category. Charles um, this obviously makes Disney very unhappy, but are you shocked that this has happened?
10: Uh, not really, although in all fairness, in the five films that are nominated, Nimona, Spider-Man, Suzume, The Ninja Turtles, The Boy and the Heron, are pretty much what's been on all the top awards competitions. The one change is the Turtles, uh, Elemental, and um, uh, uh, Chicken Run have been kind of shifting among them, but the other four are very solid. Uh, And even perhaps more surprising is that Wish was nominated for nothing. Elemental is nominated for several awards for animation, for voice acting, Uh, and so forth. But, I mean, Wish simply wasn't a very good film. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that. But Elemental,
8: I am surprised. It's got some real fans.
10: Yeah, it does. And it was the little film that could that started out with the unimpressive opening and bad reviews and just kept chugging along and ended up doing fairly well. Uh, You know, not a huge blockbuster, but it did respectively. But uh, Nimona was the big uh, nominee here. I think it gets nine awards It's a very interesting film. I found it a little bit too talky, but it's got the first gay hero in an American animated film. There's some really nice design work, some really good animation of this shape-shifting character. Suzume is uh, uh, Makoto Shinkai, extraordinary filmmaker, another heroine who is just A brave, intelligent teenage girl, and that's all you need to be to solve the problems. You don't have to have superpowers. You don't have to transform. You don't need a magic theme song. If you're an intelligent, resourceful girl, you can accomplish whatever you need to. Uh, I thought The Turtles were, was a lot of fun. Teenage
8: Mutant Ninja Turtles, yeah.
10: And, of course, The Boy and the Heron is Miyazaki, and I don't know that, that it gets Well, that was better. a slam
8: dunk. You yes. knew that was going <laughs> to be nominated, Yeah. Uh, if anything anything was. So you, you wouldn't replace any of these five, it sounds like. Uh,
10: no, again, the only one that anybody's been changing is, do you prefer The Turtles, do you prefer The New Chicken Run, or do you prefer um, Elemental, which are all good films, Um, I'm not sure any of them is really great and I'm not as high on Spider-Man as some people. I don't think it was as good as the first one. Um, I mean, uh, Tim and Christy, you you saw, you've all seen most of these, didn't you?
1: Spider-Verse is awesome. I think it's way better. The first one was groundbreaking. I thought, how are they going to top this? And they did. You thought second
8: mm. was better. Yeah, than the they oh, they wow. cram
1: more into the frame. It's so alive. The variety of, of animation styles was constantly thrilling. Mm. So I'm a fan of that one.
8: I'm a big I'm a
9: big Teenage Mutant Turtles guy. That that first of all, teenagers. <laughs> they were actually teenagers. Yeah, remember? As you said,
8: much. <laughs> and the animation is fantastic. Hey, I do want to quickly mention um, before Michael Mann joins us in conversation about Ferrari that our Wade major wanted to make sure to recommend The Power of Film, a TV mini series with new episodes every Thursday. on Turner Classic Movies. More to come on Film Week with Michael Mann.
6: Support for L.A.S. comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org.
8: It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by director Michael Mann. His notable films include Thief, Manhunter, The Last of the Mohicans, Heat, The Insider, Ali, Miami Vice, Collateral, Public Enemies... And now Ferrari, set in the summer of 1957, Enzo Ferrari's company's in crisis. The ex-racer turned car maker must see his team win a treacherous thousand mile race across Italy to keep Ferrari viable. Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz co-star, we hear them in this clip arguing over an upcoming deal with Henry Ford.
2: You should assign me control of your stock in the company and the freehold uh, so I can deal.
0: Because Henry Ford won't deal with a woman.
2: No. Because if it comes to a deal, it'll be hard and fast. I have to have all the cards in my hand.
0: Well, half the cards are in my hand.
2: Laura, what do you want me to say? Mr. Ford, we have a deal, but first I must wait until I ask my wife for permission?
0: Yes, you can say that. You know what? I'm gonna give you power of attorney over my stock,
2: so you can deal.
8: For half a million dollars.
2: I don't have half a million.
8: You will if you make a deal. Penelope Cruz, Adam Driver, Ian Ferrari, Michael Mann, thank you for joining us today on our program. Uh, thank you very much. What attracted you to this story? Because I know your history with uh, the book on which it's based goes back quite a few years.
11: Um, I, I tell you, the thing that kept attracting me to it and that kept me engaged in the story was the uh, was the um, you know the, the purely the drama, the operatic nature of the uh, of this of the of this volatile relationship and the tumultuous uh, life that Enzo and Lara and and Lena we're living in 1957, and it's um, it was kind of a dramatic opportunism, if you like, because historically it's accurate. In these three months, uh, everything that Ferrari had been this 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 iconic innovator, uh, basically a race ex race car driver, and everything he was going to become, um, all came into collision with the uh, with a very uh, tempestuous. A marriage with uh, a woman who is powerful and strong, kind of a Maria Callas figure, if you like, and a and a and a very different second family he had with Lena Lardi, who who in my mind always was similar to Ingrid Bergman, um, with an illegitimate son Piero, who in kind of this kind of an Italian convention of the period of the second family, the illegitimate second family, Vittoria de Sica it comes to mind. Um, And all the, plus their own son, Laura and Enzo's son, Dino had died a year and a half earlier after a long uh, uh, disease, muscular dystrophy. So they were in mourning, they were in grief and um, the marriage was falling apart. The company's falling apart. It's uh, uh, on the edge of bankruptcy and all of these elements come together in this one, uh, in in the period of the of the, of the film, and uh, it was a brilliant script by Troy Kennedy Martin, and that's what kept my kept me hooked into it. My original, uh, my friend, fellow directors, uh, the late Sidney Pollock, and I both fell in love with this thing, and we developed it together for a number of years, and I kept going back to it for you know for that reason.
8: It's it seems harder, Michael Mann, to do a, a sort of big budget independent film like this now than it would have been uh, even at the time that you and Sidney Pollock were developing this. and And share, you know, how how were you able to get the film made? Because um, I mean, you can you can see the money on the screen. There were huge challenges in in recreating Italy of this era, in doing the road racing sequences. Um, how how did you get this done?
11: Well, it's actually easier now because the uh, because of the advent of streaming uh, and the ability to kind of balkanize the 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 financing. Uh, in this, this sense, there's an Italian, a wonderful Italian tax credit that's very large. In our case it's about twenty-four million. Wow. Uh, we we the uh, the people who handle this for us made streaming deals in a couple of territories like France or Germany with Amazon. Uh, it was a very enthusiastic and, and excellent distributor in England Sky who've done very well with the picture uh, and then you know in, in the United States only it's, it's, it's neon. And so we were able to put together these different components uh, that to, to make the film is the film is expensive. Uh, I could have made it anytime, in the past couple of decades, if I wanted to reduce it and make it for 35 or 40 million. But I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make the film the right way or not make it at all. Just replicating the race cars, which you had to do, is a five or $6 million item. So there's, uh, you know, there's, there's hard costs involved in making the picture. Having said that, by the way, I have two producers who work for absolutely zero fees PJ Von Sandwick and John Lesser. Uh, I cut uh, radically, so did Adam Driver, to make the film. So that's how the film, you know, got made. It's very much the case that the film was made by the people who were working on the film.
8: Let's talk about Adam Driver and your decision to cast him. So he, he has to be aged up, as does, to some extent, Penelope Cruz as well. Uh, what led you to, to ultimately choose these two actors to carry the movie?
11: Uh. You know, it, it, that's that's the mystery of casting, and that's right at the heart of artistic decisions you make and creative decisions you make as a director. And it's, some of it becomes uh, falls into the category of you know when you know when you're... You know, the question I ask myself is, here's the character. Uh, and I, I don't really have the character. I've written the character and know the character. Now, if this character is inhabited by this actor, that then yields a different quotient. That then yields the final impact that this character could potentially have an audience. So from from skill, intuition, uh kind of an artistic projection, you, you know, there there's a there's a kind of a quantum sense of here's who it'll be if it's Adam Driver. And after 20 minutes of meeting Adam Driver and I knew that he had a certain ferocity inside of him that in his heart this is, this is Enzo Ferrari, the, the age difference, the physical things, the accents, those are, those I believe those are things you fix with craft work. Uh, but what, what's essential is what's in, inside the person with Penelope is very much the same thing. Penelope is strong, she's opinionated, she's wonderful. I love to hear, you know, she's a strong-willed woman and, and that certainty and self-confidence that she has is right down the, um, you know, I felt the same way about her as I did about Adam, and, and I couldn't have uh, made better choices.
8: We're talking with Michael Mann, the director of the film Ferrari, in theaters now. Is it easier to age an actor up as you did in these cases, versus if you'd had an older actor who was essentially the same age uh, as Enzo Ferrari was during most of the film, and then you had to make that actor younger for, say, the early racing scenes that went back in time?
11: Um, well, that that's just that's just that happened incidentally. If I had I, I didn't choose Adam because of that. Uh, you know, it's just you know we just we took we took the wig off and and you know presto you know he has black hair and he's he's younger for the flashbacks. We'd have done that a different way if say Adam had been fifty seven years old and we wanted to make him look like it was twenty years earlier.
8: You're listening to Film Week on LA's eighty nine point three. We'll be right back. Michael Mann, the director of Ferrari, joining us to talk about the film. Let's talk about the technical challenges of the racing. One of the things that's so impressive to me when you're doing what's the signature race at the end of the film is how the camera is able in front of the race cars to move in and out the way that it is. Can you describe a bit about the framework on which the camera sits and the ways that you were able to to move the camera around to film those scenes?
11: It begins with it begins with what you first started talking about, which is how do I ask myself the question? How do I want this racing to impact upon you? How do I what do I want your experience of the racing to be dramatically? I could shoot race cars with long lenses and it's quite beautiful and elegant. And but that to me distances audiences audiences and makes them into uh, observers. And I didn't want them to be observer. but I didn't want you to be observing it. I wanted you to be experientially empathetic to almost within it as if you're inside the car yourself. So that then becomes the objective. And when that becomes the mission objective, you know, that will then work itself into what am I, what what will I be seeing and feeling? And then what do I have to have the cameras be to in order to be able to affect that and pull that off? And that then leads you into the would lead led me into the technology I had to develop to be able to get the cameras into those positions on these particular vehicles, all of which we built. And then we replicated these race cars, all except for the single-seater Maserati that Jean Beyard drives in the in the church sequence. That car is owned by Nick Mason, the Pink Floyd drummer. That one's authentic. All the other cars that are that, that we race aggressively, those are all our perfect by the way they're mathematically perfect replicas but beneath the hand beaten aluminum skin of those cars sits a custom built we built them tubular chassis and a contemporary drivetrain. and those cars because the cars had to be reliable they had to be very fast they could go 140 150 miles an hour and they had to be very safe and uh so that meant we were building them. We, uh, the man who engineered all that, is Neil Layton in the UK, and then a fantastic company of, uh, of restorers in Modena uh, called Campana, who uh, did all of the finish work. And that included all the instrumentations and all the little detail you see that are—it's to- all totally authentic. Uh,
8: you have done films of all different sorts of styles and different tones as well. And one of the things that you're known for is the sense of style that you bring to your work. We think of the television series Miami Vice with its own palette, its own its own look on television. Um, we think about your films and and the vid- collateral incredible, you know, night scene in Los Angeles that you create. And I wonder as, as you think about your career and and at this later stage in career, all the work that you've done, the degree to which style and and the lasting effect of those stylistic choices is important to you.
11: Well, no, that's part. That's part of the. i mean, listen, That's part of the excitement of it. And it, it's. I wouldn't call it style. I call it the film form. And the the form of the film. Uh, you know, I want the form of the film to deliver an experience of the story and the world that the story is taking you is taking you into. And it is exciting, you know, to me, to be doing a different thing every time. I, I you know, the idea of of replicating what I did or repeating what I may have done last isn't anywhere near as exciting as, you know, I don't know, how do you how do you port, how how do you make audiences really feel they're in 1757 in the Northeastern Woodlands? Um you know what? What are what are the what? What are what are people wearing? You know, and even more importantly to that, what are the, how are they? Uh, what are their attitudes? How are they thinking? What's period authentic psychology? What's courtship? How do you say to a girl, "I like you," if you're coming from Iroquois culture and she's coming from having lived in, say, Grover or Portman Square uh, in 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 1755? Okay. But the form it takes uh, is wonderful to explore. It's a great adventure. I, I wouldn't I can't imagine wanting to do it any other way. Or why would anybody want to do it any other way? And then so, too, to make the world of L.A. at night come alive the way it is for those of us who live in Los Angeles. And we know at a certain time of year that marine layer comes in, the cloud layer at about twelve hundred feet. All the streetlights reflect off the bottom of the clouds and it becomes like very, very late afternoon in northern England. You actually can see and you can't do that on photochemical. So consequently, we still a lot of experimentation in R&D and we're able to develop systems of shooting it in high def video. And that's where so collateral is the first uh, kind of high def video photoreal of film and it was uh it's exciting to be out on a frontier like that with with some of this stuff you know or, or how are we going to evoke miami in an exciting way and and the first thing one does is i went down to miami well, Miami, when I went down there in 1984, it was, you know, it was uniformly beige. It was tan, <laughs> the whole place. It was like really, you know, it's where your grandparents are living, right? Yeah. You know, and I started looking back at these streamlined deco buildings and realized the colors they were originally painted were, were, were in pastels, it was very tropical. And uh, so we returned South, South Beach to its original pastel palette. And uh, to, to more strongly and powerfully evoke the sense of the place, so that it's more real to you, more believable. And when people are believing the world you're creating, then the story and believability of uh, uh, increases. And that's the that's that's where the form uh, the film form comes from. And it's yeah, it's exciting to be doing something that you haven't done before, that's novel, That, uh, especially if if no one's done it before, that makes it even more exciting.
8: Before we close, I wanted to ask you about the complexity of, of the relationship of your two lead characters, but let's listen to this scene. Laura Ferrari is blaming Enzo for the loss of their son Dino a year earlier.
0: You were supposed to save him.
8: You blame me for his death?
0: Yes. Yes, because you promised me he wouldn't die.
2: Everything. I did everything. Table showing what calories he could eat, what went in, what came out. I graphed the degrees of albuminuria, the degrees of esotemia. Diuresis. I know more about nephritis and dystrophy than cars.
10: Yes, I blame you. I blame you. Could you let him die?
2: The father deluded himself!
8: A very dramatic scene in a dramatic film. Michael Mann, what did you say to your actors when you commenced production to help them understand the dynamics of this marriage?
11: Ah, uh, that would take a lot longer than we have any time for. <laughs> what's interview. the first what's oh, the first it, thing it, you said it, to characterize was, this marriage? It was months, and I would listen. If you listen very carefully, every every sound that's coming out of Adam Driver's mouth is perfect, the way he Emphasize some of the words that are ending in vowels. The way he says the word out, I mean, so it's the language, the movement, the breathing, but all of that gets integrated and has to become organic and reflexive. You can't be thinking about those things when you have these powerful emotions going on. And so he's condemning himself. We also, what's interesting about that scene, is we didn't know that he did all of those things. We know he's in a state of grief because very early in the film, he goes to the mausoleum and talks to... His dead son, as if the son's alive, almost as if they're having a casual conversation, and he does this every single morning, and we know that, so we know it's a state of grief. But we didn't know what the struggle was in all the years leading up to this state of of, of, of a mind that he has about uh, about Dino, who had died a year earlier, and and she has a completely different perspective on it, and uh, hers is very primitive almost tribal in the sense that she condemns him uh, because he was distracted because he had another family. And uh, that's why all of his attention didn't go to him. So he accuses him of, you know, so it's a very powerful, powerful uh, scene between the two of them. And I remember shooting and when I was shooting it, I remember seeing in the monitor these very performances and you get this, as a director, this tremendous blast when, you know, they've, they've totally landed you know, the scene, they just killed the scene.
8: I want to thank you, Michael Mann, for joining us to talk about the film Ferrari as well as your career. We appreciate it very much. Thanks so much. It's Film Week on L.A.S. 89.3. If you missed any part of today's reviews or my conversation with director Michael Mann, you can download the full episode of the Film Week podcast wherever you get your audio or at las.com. Thanks for joining us. Have a wonderful weekend.